Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in chapter three of this book titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is volume one of the Words of the Buddha book series. And in this chapter, you're learning all about what enlightenment is because the more that you understand what enlightenment is, the more likely you'll be able to make your way to enlightenment. If you didn't know what enlightenment was, you wouldn't be able to make your way towards it. So by taking some time here at the beginning of the program and at the beginning of the book to understand what enlightenment is will help you to get a perspective of what that is so that you can then more readily make your way to it. The whole rest of the book is dedicated to guiding you to enlightenment. But here at the very beginning of the book, I take some time to make sure that students understand what enlightenment is. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. And as normal, you're always welcome to ask questions by putting that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. In the comment section, I'll be able to see that and be able to answer any questions that you have. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly that you would like related to the topic that we're discussing today. I'm going to go ahead and pull up some visual aids to help explain what enlightenment is so that you'll be able to understand this. All right. So the first thing to understand related to understanding what enlightenment is, is that it's extremely challenging to understand what enlightenment is for the unenlightened mind. The way to truly understand what enlightenment is, is to actually experience it. It's essentially like chocolate ice cream or chocolate cake. You wouldn't be able to explain what it is unless you actually tasted it. And then through your experience of having tasted it, you'd be able to explain what it tastes like. So as we talk today, I'm going to be sharing as much content about what enlightenment is that you'd like. And you're welcome to ask any and all questions that you like. But just keep in mind that as we go in our discussion today, that by the end of this discussion, you most likely aren't going to fully understand what enlightenment is until you're actually experiencing it. As you get closer and closer to enlightenment, you'll be experiencing these glimpses of what enlightenment is like. So you'll be getting a better and better understanding as you're getting closer and closer to it. But as you're making your way towards enlightenment, you're not going to necessarily understand 100% of what enlightenment is actually like. And that's okay. As long as you have a beginning understanding of what enlightenment is, and then as you progress forward, more and more you'll be able to get an understanding of what enlightenment is. So to deeply and fully understand what enlightenment is, you would need to actually understand it through experiencing it. And as you gradually evolve and develop your practice, you'll understand more and more about it. 
as you are making your way to enlightenment, it's really helpful to understand the ultimate goal. So feel free to ask any and all questions that you like as we go forward in our class and I'll help you to understand what enlightenment is and how to actually attain it. We're gonna be discussing that today as well. So let's discuss what enlightenment is. What enlightenment is, is it's a mental state that is attainable during life as a human or heavenly being where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. It no longer experiences any discontent feelings whatsoever. So all anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, resentment, even the slightest displeasure is eliminated from the enlightened mind. There's no jealousy, there's no grief, there's no misery or despair. And as I mentioned, even the slightest little ickiness in the mind is completely eliminated. The mind is just going to be peaceful and joyful for the rest of this life. For the rest of this life, you're going to experience this permanent mental state. The mind's going to be concentrated and steady. It's going to be unshakable. There's nothing that can happen that will shake up your mind. In the unenlightened state, it's just a matter of a certain experience occurring where there's a craving, desire, attachment in the mind. And if you get the objects of your affection, you'll get those conditioned, pleasant feelings where if you don't get what you want, you'll get those painful feelings of anger, sadness, frustration, and others. So the mind is unconcentrated, unsteady, and shaken up. But in the enlightened mind, you've removed the conditions that are causing this to occur. So the mind is concentrated, steady, and unshakable. As one attains enlightenment, they've also escaped the cycle of rebirth that they'll never be reborn into a new existence again. As the mind gets closer and closer to the enlightened mental state, the mind has been purified. It's gained the wisdom that it needs, so it no longer needs to come back into this world. As long as the mind is holding on and wanting things to be a certain way and it hasn't acquired the wisdom that it needs to live this peaceful and joyful life, it's going to continue to experience rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. The mind of an enlightened being is calm and relaxed, yet attentive and alert. Oftentimes when we think about calm or peaceful or relaxed, we think maybe like lethargic or dull or something like that, but that's not true. The enlightened mind is calm and relaxed, but it's attentive and alert. And this mental state is attainable during life and it's also attainable at death as well. So an individual would be more wise to attain this mental state during their life because then you can enjoy the rest of this life with the enlightened mental state. But it's also attainable at death as well. And that would be the next best option. But you can't know that that's going to occur and you can't bank on that occurring. So a wise individual would spend time, effort, energy, and their resources to be able to go forward in life, learning and practicing these teachings gradually and making their way towards the goal or objective or interest of attaining this enlightened mental state. But just know that it can be attained at death as well. In order to get to enlightenment, one would need to eliminate and create this extinguishing of craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind. These are known as the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots. We'll be describing this when we get to chapter eight of the book series. I'm going to be explaining craving, anger, and ignorance in detail. In the Four Noble Truths, I've explained craving to a certain level of degree, but then as we go forward, I'm going to be explaining craving, anger, and ignorance in a lot more detail because that's another layer of detail below and deeper 
beyond the four noble truths that's going to help you to understand the three individual problems that are in the unenlightened mind and why it continues to experience this discontentedness. This word ignorance is what we're translating from what the Buddha taught during his lifetime. Some people use the word misunderstanding or confusion. It's important to understand that an enlightened being, and particularly a Buddha, isn't going to speak to someone in a derogatory way. So this ignorance, it's not meant to be in a derogatory way. The real essence behind what the Buddha was teaching as this word ignorance that we're translating to is the unknowing of true reality. Essentially, the unenlightened mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It has certain misperceptions about the world. And because of those misperceptions and this unknowing of true reality, it continues to be stuck in this continuous cycle of discontentedness. So for example, when we talked about the Four Noble Truths at the very beginning of the program, then that is certain unknowing a true reality that we have in the unenlightened state that we don't realize in the unenlightened state that we are causing our own discontentedness. We tend to blame other people for the discontentedness that we experience. So when the mind gets angry or sad or frustrated or some other feeling, typically what an unenlightened mind is going to do is it's going to blame somebody else for that and think that that's what's causing them to be angry or sad or frustrated or irritated or annoyed. But that's because of the ignorance and the unknowing of true reality. And because of that lack of wisdom, then we can't ever solve the problem. Because what the unenlightened mind will typically do because of this craving, anger, and ignorance is when you experience something like anger or frustration or other feelings, you attribute that to a person or to a situation, and it will typically push that person out of the way. Or it will become harsh and bitter and hostile. And then that person chooses to leave because the mind is falsely attributing those painful feelings to this individual or to the situation. So they tend to push this person away thinking that that's going to solve the problem, but it doesn't. And that's because of the ignorance or unknowing of true reality. The mind just keeps getting frustrated and irritated and annoyed and sad and bored and lonely over and over and over again because of this unknowing of true reality. So what the Buddha's teachings are doing is helping you to gain the wisdom that you don't believe his teachings. You learn them, reflect on them and practice. And then through your independent verification of his teachings and practice of his teachings, the mind transforms where now you're able to see that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. Things that once arose anger in the mind, now that has diminished and diminished and diminished over time, becoming frustrated, irritated, annoyed. As you continue to train, that same situation no longer arises any anger in the mind or even the slightest annoyance. The mind is peaceful and joyful all the time. But as long as there's craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, this misunderstanding, this misperceptions, then the mind's going to continue to experience this discontentedness. So what you're doing on this path is you're independently investigating the teachings of the Buddha and you're learning with the teacher so that the teacher can guide you in your journey. But it's you that's doing the work to investigate the teachings, to meditate, to ask questions in classes, and all of these other things like that. So as you eliminate the craving, anger, and ignorance, you're also doing what's called 
called Realizing Non-Self and Dissolving the Ego. We're going to talk about this a little bit next week, but more specifically, we're going to talk about it in chapter 16, because that's the point in time where one has already learned enough information about all the other teachings that in chapter 16, it's time to really dive into understanding the universal truth of non-self and eliminating the ego. And this is part of the work that one needs to do in order to get to enlightenment. As long as there is that arrogance and pride and measuring and comparing and judging people and looking down on people or looking up to people, then the mind's going to find it very challenging to live harmoniously with others. So what you're doing to antidote this craving anger and ignorance is you're learning to practice generosity loving kindness and wisdom and here is where i will share with you throughout the program how to practice generosity loving kindness and wisdom so that you can eliminate craving anger and ignorance and there's a whole path that the buddha taught which is called the eightfold path which is going to help you to understand the detailed teachings of how to eliminate craving anger and ignorance and get to this peaceful and joyful mental state of enlightenment What you're doing on the path to enlightenment is you're purifying the mind, training the mind to eliminate the conditions that keep it in the unenlightened mental state. So these pollutions or these conditions of craving anger and ignorance are plaguing the mind and keeping it trapped in this continuous cycle of discontentedness and this continuous cycle of rebirth. But when you purify the mind through transforming the mind and training it on the Eightfold Path, then the mind can get liberated from those pollutions or taints or defilements, these fetters that the Buddha talked about. And when you purify the mind of these pollutions, you'll see the brightness and the radiance coming through in the mind more and more. You'll start noticing these longer and longer periods of peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentedness, and joy, eventually getting to the point where it's been one year, two years, three years, You haven't been angry at all. You haven't even had the slightest annoyance, the slightest irritation, the slightest displeasure in the mind. And you'll know that having applied the effort and energy to learn these teachings and practice them in a very determined, dedicated, and diligent way that it's led you to this improved condition of mind where now it's been one year, two years, three years, and you haven't even experienced the slightest displeasure in the mind. And you'll know that the mind is enlightened at that point. Some people refer to enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss. This doesn't describe enlightenment entirely because it's actually referring more to what we call the jhanas. There's these four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. And then there's four stages of enlightenment, which we're going to be talking about today. These four stages of enlightenment ultimately lead to enlightenment and the mind actually isn't enlightened until it gets to the fourth stage. At the fourth stage of enlightenment, the mind has eliminated discontentedness and it's no longer going to experience rebirth. But in those four preliminary phases leading up to the first stage of enlightenment, there can be this bliss that comes into the mind, almost a euphoric feeling that almost feels like a high. If you've ever used drugs and felt some kind of high, it actually feels like that, but even beyond that, even more ultimate bliss than that. So there's some people who experience these jhanas, they experience this ultimate bliss, they think that their mind is enlightened at that point, so they're describing enlightenment as ultimate bliss. But in that 
part of the path to enlightenment where the mind is in the jhanas experiencing this ultimate bliss it's still experiencing discontentedness there's still some sadness there's still some irritation and things like this that has been diminished but they're still experiencing discontentedness so i don't use the word ultimate bliss and i don't even use the word happiness because you know what happiness feels like you've been happy before that was conditional happiness but you know what happiness feels like and you know that your mind isn't enlightened so if happiness is enlightenment then we've all been happy in the unenlightened state but yet the mind is unenlightened so rather than describe enlightenment as happiness it's better to think of it as this peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy where there's these mental qualities that are always there and always turned on an enlightened mind is going to experience unconditioned happiness or unconditioned joy this conditional happiness that the unenlightened mind is experiencing is ultimately unsatisfactory because it's just temporary the mind goes into this happiness for a few minutes or a few hours or a few days, but then ultimately it fades away, leaving you feeling unsatisfied. This is conditional happiness. The mind can only be happy when certain conditions exist. And when those conditions change, now the mind isn't happy anymore. It becomes sad or angry or frustrated or some other discontent feeling. So as long as the mind is holding on to this conditional happiness, then that means your happiness is only going to be temporary. So the mind is oftentimes taught as we're growing up that you know it's money that's going to make us happy or a brand new car or a brand new job or a boyfriend or girlfriend or a bigger house or new shoes or new clothes and then the mind chases after these things thinking that this is what's going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction or lasting happiness and if you get the objects of your affection then you get this conditional happiness where the mind is happy for a period of time but it's only a matter of time before those conditions change you can't have happiness about wealth or a big house or a new job. It can't be maintained permanently because your inner feelings are based on some condition. So now when the mind no longer has that job, now the mind moves to sadness. Or if you wake up in the morning and you're excited because it's sunny outside and you're happy because it's sunny outside, you're basing your inner feelings on the condition that it's sunny outside. And now when it starts raining a little bit later, you'll experience a painful feeling like sadness or anger or frustration or some other discontent feeling because of the conditional nature of the feelings that one is experiencing. The unenlightened mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition, but that condition is impermanent. So as soon as that condition changes, now the mind is going to experience a change in the feelings. It's going to move from pleasant to painful. But an enlightened mind doesn't do this. An enlightened mind has unconditional happiness or unconditional joy where it's just always joyful you wake up in the morning it's sunny outside but you were already joyful before you saw the sun 
And then maybe the weather changes and now it's raining outside, but you can maintain your joy. You still are joyful because you weren't happy because it was sunny. Now when that changes, you still can maintain your joy because you didn't base your inner feelings on this impermanent condition. Or if you have a job, a certain job, you can already be joyful because of a certain job. But if you're unemployed for a period of time, the enlightened mind can still maintain its joy. Or if you're in a relationship, then the mind is already joyful before it has the relationship. And then when the relationship's over, you can still maintain your joy because you didn't base your joy on the actual relationship itself. So as long as the mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition, it's only a matter of time before those conditions change. And now the mind is having a change of feelings. But with the enlightened mind, there's unconditioned mental qualities of peace and calm, serenity and contentedness with joy. And this is going to be permanently in the mind all the way through the rest of this life. Let's talk about some of the advantages of enlightenment. As I've mentioned, the enlightened mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This is one of the advantages of having an enlightened mind because if you can remember all the different times that you've been angry or frustrated or irritated, annoyed, or any of these other discontent feelings, it takes a lot of time and it's a big burden to carry around these heavy emotions. You might have been angry at somebody for a week or two or three or sometimes even multiple years people are angry at somebody. This is a big burden to carry around. So when you eliminate all of this from the mind, then you'll be able to experience this peace, this calm, serenity, contentedness with joy, where you're not carrying around these heavy emotions anymore. And because you've eliminated the pollution of the mind, there's this focus, concentration, and deep memory, this clarity of mind. As long as there's pollution in the mind, the mind's not going to be able to maintain its focus, concentration, memory, or clarity of mind, because these pollutions are bogging the mind down and making it challenging and difficult for it to have this focus, concentration, memory, and clarity of mind. One of the advantages of attaining enlightenment is that you no longer experience discontent feelings. You don't have to carry these heavy, strong feelings around any longer that plague the mind and that affect certain relationships that you're in. As long as these discontent feelings are in the mind, then the mind's going up and down and up and down. And in certain situations where the mind's discontent, you're not able to make wise decisions. And we might actually make decisions that create a situation that's worse. Whereas if our mind can be clear and it can be peaceful and it can be focused and concentrated, you can bring forth your wisdom in any one particular situation so that then you can make wise decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. But as long as your mind is shaken up with discontentedness, you'll make unwise decisions in certain situations that are gonna to lead to unwholesome results. An enlightened being is going to have deep wisdom about the path to enlightenment and how to actually attain enlightenment because they would have needed to learn the teachings and train their mind in those teachings for an extended period of time. And they're going to have politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect towards all beings. They're not going to be rude to some people or disrespectful to others or unfriendly to other people. But because they've eliminated the pollution of their mind, they can be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings. 
Oftentimes when we're harboring a grudge or we are resentful in the unenlightened state, you might find it very difficult to be polite, kind, friendly, respectful to others. But when you eliminate the pollutions of mind, the conditions that are causing it to hold a grudge or feel resentful or feel jealous or these other disconsent feelings, then you'll be able to be polite, kind, friendly, respectful towards everyone. When you're holding certain grudges and you have a, a certain amount of anger or frustration in the mind, you can't live harmoniously with all beings. So in those situations, you're going to find that there's rub in your relationships and you might be impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful. In an enlightened being, has eliminated that from the mind and they're no longer doing that so they're not causing harm in the world they're not through their intention speech and actions they're not causing any harm so no harm's coming to them so they're able to easily and peacefully coexist with others other people may not be able to easily peacefully coexist with you but you'll be able to be harmonious and peaceful and joyful with everybody around you and this will improve your personal and professional relationships where personal and professional relationships oftentimes struggle this is because one's own mind has these pollutions in there and as long as these pollutions of craving anger and ignorance in the ten fetters are in the mind then one is going to find it very challenging in their personal and professional relationships there'll be harshness or aggressiveness or bitterness in their relationships there'll be a rub in their relationships and this will make it difficult to peacefully coexist harmoniously in all your different relationships but an enlightened mind doesn't experience that because they remove those conditions that are causing it to be difficult to exist in relationships harmoniously so your personal and professional relationships will blossom and these are some of the reasons why you will know that you're headed in the right direction with the teachings of the buddha is that as you're learning his teachings and you're practicing them and transforming the mind, you'll see more peacefulness and joy come into the mind. You'll see more focus and concentration and deeper memory and clarity of mind occurring in the mind. You'll see these discontent feelings gradually diminishing. You'll see that you're able to be more polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all people where in other situations in other parts of your life, you know that you weren't able to do that. And you'll see your personal and professional relationships blossom and start to take on this new way of conducting yourself around others. And because you're conducting yourself around others in more wise ways and more wholesome ways, you'll see that people will reciprocate that with you as you're in your various relationships. And this is how you'll know that your mind is moving closer and closer to enlightenment because you'll have the proof based on the condition of your own mind and the condition of your life and the way that your life has really blossomed and improved through the various relationships that you're experiencing, which will be very different than what you were experiencing when the mind didn't understand these teachings and you weren't practicing these teachings. So I'm gonna pause here and see what questions you guys have. Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see those and be able to answer any questions that you have. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and I can just call on you there and you'll be able to ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions in YouTube, Facebook, or in Zoom. So we'll just go ahead and move forward into the additional things that I'm gonna share with you guys today. 
So the next thing I would like to share with you is how to actually attain enlightenment. So now that you know a little bit about what it's like and what it is, now let's talk about how to attain enlightenment. Oh, I see Marcy just raised her hand. Let's go to Marcy for her question. Thank you, Teacher David. Sorry about that. I kind of was a little slow on the on the pressing of it. Um, so my question to you is, I understand that I am not enlightened, so I am still dealing with discontentedness, but I, I have to make a decision. And the, the decision now, because I am still muddled, is I'm basing it upon what Gautama Buddha teaches about right livelihood, you know, and basically making the decision based upon the fact of poisons, you know, that's something that I don't want to be a part of. Is that okay? Because that is following the path, even though I don't have that full clarity yet about what decision is the right decision to make, is it okay to bring it back down to Gautama Buddha's teachings and making the decision based upon like that one thing, I don't want to sell poisons? Yes, you can do that. That's what his teachings are there for. His teachings are sharing with you the wisdom of the natural law of gamma, of this cause and effect and action and result. And what you would like to do is you'd like to be able to independently verify that and see for yourself that, yes, this is true. If I sell poisons, I'm causing harm in the world and I'm not interested in causing harm. Or if I'm selling living beings or meat or selling substances that cause heedlessness or weapons or things like this, then you see the truth in that and what the Buddha is explaining. And then because you see the truth and you now have that wisdom, you will make wiser decisions about your livelihood, for example, in this example, because you've learned it in the Buddhist teachings, you've independently verified it and know that it's the truth, and then you'll start practicing it. And that's where you'll see better results for yourself. That in an environment where people are selling poisons, there's going to be more hostility, there's going to be more aggression, there's going to be other problematic issues in an environment where people are selling poisons. So by you no longer choosing to be in an environment like that, you'll then be working in a livelihood where there's wholesomeness and there's care and there's love and there's people who are more harmonious with each other because the livelihood that you're choosing to participate in and the people that you're choosing to participate in that livelihood with are more geared towards loving kindness and compassion and doing things that are unharmful in the world. But as long as you choose to be in a livelihood where there is harm being caused based on that livelihood, you're going to encounter individuals and situations that are problematic for your life. And that's why one wouldn't be interested in doing that. And as you see the wisdom in that, and you make these wiser decisions and you start practicing in line with the natural law of gamma, then you'll see improvements in your life and in your relationships around you. Thank you, Teacher David. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. I saw Joe also had a hand up, but it's not up anymore. Did you have a question, Joe? Um, sure. I guess I'll, I guess I'll ask. Um, I guess this might be a stereotype, um, but I was wondering if sort of Buddhism eventually and enlightenment uh, eventually leads to isolation, um, you know, because, you know, you see in movies and, you know, all these other places that, um, you know, these Buddhists and Buddhist monks, they live in, you know, rural, separate kind of areas. And I know that, you know, I guess countries like yours, their Buddhism is common, but even here, um, there's a, like a Buddhist temple and it's, you know, it's sort of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, anyways, I guess, does it lead to isolation and do you need to 
you know, separate yourself. I, I mean, it makes sense to separate yourself from a lot of things because it's, you know, uh, maybe it does, but it could just be a American ignorance. I don't know. Sure. Let me help you understand. So enlightenment itself doesn't lead to seclusion or isolation. In fact, it's just the opposite, that as the mind is enlightened, you'll be able to interact with anybody and everybody, everyone around you. You'll consider everybody like a family and you'll be able to easily communicate and easily talk with anybody and everybody. In the process of getting to enlightenment, some people choose to really consolidate their life and kind of bring it down to a minimum number of people because in that situation with less contact you're not creating as much harmful decisions that is then going to ultimately come back to you so like when the buddha went out into the forest for four years a total of six of years of his training he wasn't interacting with anybody during that time so that's one way of extinguishing your gamma is by going into seclusion and isolation so some people choose to do that as part of getting to enlightenment but an enlightened being themselves isn't going to be isolated they're going to be able to interact with anybody and everybody but by bringing your life down to maybe a select group of people it allows you to go in and spend time working on your own mind where you're not having to maintain you know 50 different relationships in the world and you're still causing difficulties in the world because the mind's not enlightened yet some people will choose to kind of consolidate and go really small in terms of interacting with very few people the way that i think about this and i think we talked about this at one point is i think about it like a bow tie where when we first are born and we're young we have this wide open life where we're just spending time with all these different people we're doing all these different things in the world our life is like wide open but then we start encountering certain problems in our life and we start bringing down the number of people we spend time with to less and less and less and less people and we're kind of like in the knot of the bow tie and in that knot of the bow tie that's where the work is going on to train the mind and do the inner work to overcome the obstacles and to gain this wisdom that you need to train the mind and bring the mind to enlightenment and then as the mind becomes enlightened then your life kind of expands back out and as you're starting to practice these teachings you start expanding back out so while some people choose to go into isolation in order to get to enlightenment it's not required and it's ultimately not the goal the ultimate goal is not to be isolated because during the lifetime of the buddha he had thousands and thousands and thousands of people that he was interacting with but we tend to oftentimes go into a bit of isolation or a bit of consolidation of our relationships because it gives you the most time to be able to work on your own inner work and in a place like america where not many people are, are learning these teachings you can feel very foreign. You can feel very much out of place because so many other people might be doing just the opposite of these teachings. You might be practicing loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. These are the Brahma Viharas that you're going to learn about in chapter 14. But other people around you might not be practicing that way. You might be experiencing harshness and bitterness and hostility and these other kind of things. And kind of connecting this to what Marcy was saying is that you start making choices where you're like, mm, I'm not really interested in being around that. Or you see somebody that has this inflated ego and you're like, mm, I'm not really interested in being around that. And you kind of choose to be away from that 
for a period of time. Not because that's going to solve any of your problems, but it's just a wise choice. And you might find in a place where people aren't practicing these teachings, it's very challenging to find friends that are maybe loyal to you as a friend or that they're practicing loving kindness and compassion and some of these other teachings. So you might go a period of time where you're not really spending too much time with anybody other than maybe your close family members and a few people at work or something like that as you're doing this inner work. But then as your mind starts to transform more and more, you'll be able to expand back out and spend time with anybody and everybody. But initially it does kind of help to do that if that's what you choose to do. It's up to you. You don't have to do that, but you can do that. And not everybody would choose to do that as a way of getting to enlightenment, but it can actually help because not only are you consolidating the number of people you're interacting with, thus you're limiting the amount of karma that you're producing in a given day, but you're also training your own mind to be able to spend time alone where you don't feel lonely. Oftentimes when we're alone, we feel lonely in the unenlightened mental state because there's that craving to be with other people. So if you go a period of time where you're not necessarily with so many people in your life and you kind of consolidate your relationships, you can work on training your mind to overcome any kind of loneliness or cravings that are in the mind that are producing loneliness. So these things can be helpful, but it's not necessarily required to do it that way. Okay. Thank you. I think I did ask something similar before, and I, I guess I needed to hear it again. Thank you. Yeah, that's common. Oftentimes people need to ask similar questions or hear it a different way. This is completely normal. It looks like Nadia has a question as well. If you'd like to go ahead and ask your question, you can, Nadia. Um, hi, good morning. Um, I was just wondering about, you know, when um, when you say, we're always joyful. Our mind is always joyful once we attain the, attain the state of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering why, in the sense that I understand that we don't have these um, bad, you know, anger and bad bad thoughts anymore. But why is it always joy? Where where does it come from? Where do, where is the joy coming from then? Okay, so in the unenlightened mind. It experiences feelings based on conditions like craving, anger, and ignorance. These conditions are in there causing the mind to go up and down and up and down. So this is what's called a conditional feelings. Conditional feelings are going to arise, they're going to change, and they're going to fade away because they're impermanent. They're based on some condition. But by the time you've purified the mind and you've removed those conditions, now the enlightened mind is what's called unconditioned. The mind has been purified. It's unconditioned. So the natural state of an unconditioned mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The joy is just always there because you've removed the conditions that are causing it to go up and down. The mind is now unconditioned. These qualities, they don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. A real easy, simple way to think about enlightenment is an enlightened being is never in a bad mood. They're just always in a good mood. That's just an easy way to think about it because the bad mood is being caused by the craving, anger, and ignorance. But when you uproot that and get that out of the mind, now the mind is purified. It's now experiencing this light, this enlightenment, where this radiance and this brightness of the natural mind can shine through. So 
I often talk about enlightenment as you need to attain enlightenment or you experience enlightenment. But one of the ways to think about it is that your mind is already enlightened and you've got these pollutions that are in the mind that are hindering you from experiencing this enlightened mind. And when you get rid of these pollutions, now that natural mind, that natural radiance and brightness can shine through. And this can be really helpful if somebody has like a craving for enlightenment. Oftentimes this is because the mind is longing and yearning and chasing after it because it feels like it doesn't have it and now we need to chase after it. So if you feel, I'm not sure that you feel this way, Nadia, but other people might feel this way too, is that sometimes there's this craving for enlightenment where if you kind of change the mind and think that, okay, the mind is already enlightened, I need to just get these pollutions out of here so that I can experience more and more of the qualities of enlightenment. This can be a way to help you get rid of any craving or desire for enlightenment itself. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. I'm not seeing any other questions, but let me just check one more time. Okay, here we go. Here's one from YouTube, Michael Jenkins. I just want to add, it's a lot easier when you retire and don't have to deal in the busy day and daily grind. In some respects, I would agree with what you're sharing, Michael, that when you don't have daily work and your kids are grown and those kind of things, yes, you have more time, but also when you're older, your mind is experienced more conditioning. So that if you're 50, 60, 80 years old, there's no bad time to work on getting to enlightenment. But by that time, you've experienced so much conditioning that you have a lot more pollution. So there's a lot more to uproot and get out of the mind. Where like my son, I started training him when he was six years old. And I oftentimes think about him receiving training when he was in his mom's stomach because she was meditating and practicing these teachings then. So he was really experiencing a lot more peacefulness when he was in her stomach and you know at home her and i weren't arguing and upset with each other so he didn't hear any of that kind of stuff when he was in her stomach or when he was an infant and coming out so at a young age like that in a relatively short period of time he's been able to learn and uproot all these conditions out of the mind in a relatively straightforward way because his mind didn't have all this conditioning so if somebody can learn the younger in life that they can learn the better the buddha talks about this as well that if we all learned these teachings when we were six years old like my son has been learning and now he's 10 we would have a much different life he's going to have a much different life than i ever had growing up and this is one of the beauties of a parent learning these teachings is that then we can guide our children and understanding the natural law of gamma and then they can navigate the world in a much better way without this discontentedness. So my son, he very rarely experiences any discontentedness, maybe once or twice a year now, where before I started training him, of course, he was crying, he was upset, he would have arguments with his mom and things like this. And as he learned these teachings, now he doesn't experience that stuff anymore. So he's going to have a much different life. So I would encourage people to learn these teachings as early in life as possible. But there is no bad time to learn these teachings. So even when somebody retires, if they choose to learn them, okay, go ahead and learn them when you retire. But the sooner that you can learn them, the better, because then 
as you get to enlightenment sooner in life, you'll be able to experience a more peaceful life as you go through your life. So that's what I would recommend for somebody. And then you can even share it with your relatives, you know, your life partners, your friends, your family, your children, nieces, nephews, things like this. All right, so I don't see any questions in Facebook or anymore in YouTube or Zoom. So let's go ahead and discuss this next part that I was planning to share with you guys, which is how to actually attain enlightenment. There's a whole plethora of teachings that the Buddha shared. And if you continue to learn with me in this group learning program and in the Pali Canon English study group, attending courses and retreats and other things like this, you'll over time learn all of these teachings gradually, slowly but surely. But in terms of focusing on a core central set of teachings, this is what I would recommend for a beginning student. And I'm going to be sharing all of these with you in the group learning program. And there's a lot of other teachings that I'm going to be sharing with you in the group learning program as well. But this is the core central teachings that you would need to learn and implement in order to make your way towards enlightenment. The three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the Brahma Viharas, the ten fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment, and extensive meditation training. This is what's going to really propel you to enlightenment. And of course, there's a whole lot of other teachings out there that you would need to learn, but this is where you really get started. And this is the real core of the book. And we're going to be covering these over the next three or four weeks in this program. And then by the time we get to the Brahma Viharas in chapter 13, and there's other teachings that I share as well, but these core central teachings are going to be shared in this program and in this very first book to help you build a foundation and framework to understand the teachings that you need in order to get to enlightenment. But always remember that you're not believing any of these teachings. You're learning, reflecting to independently verify, and you're practicing them with the guidance of a teacher. But also remember that you're on this independent journey. You're the one that's doing the work to acquire the wisdom. The teacher's here to provide you resources, provide you guidance, provide you the ability to get help as you need personal guidance or you need to ask questions. We're almost like a life coach, if you know what a life coach is. But we're not charging money. We're not using all of these other things that they might choose to go into. We're only sharing with you the natural law of gamma, these natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught and helping you to understand this wisdom to train your mind and get to this enlightened mental state where you've acquired wisdom and you're able to then make decisions for yourself. A Buddhist teacher should not be making decisions for you. Our role isn't to make decisions for you, but instead to provide you wisdom that you can then make decisions for yourself. So as you develop this wisdom, you'll then be able to make wiser and wiser decisions in your own life. And you'll be able to see and build confidence that you have the ability to train your mind and get to enlightenment. And these are the core central teachings that you'll need to be able to accomplish that goal. So I would suggest that you focus on these. And I will be sharing these with you, as I mentioned, in the group learning program, but a whole lot of other things too I'll be sharing with you. But you can come back to this list of this is what you would really like to focus in on as you're first getting started. Let's talk about the 10 fetters. The 10 fetters are these 10 pollutions that are in the mind. And in order to get to enlightenment, an individual would need to eliminate these 10 fetters. There's 10 individual fetters or pollutions or defilements or taints. They're organized in the lower fetters and the higher fetters. 
you don't necessarily need to focus on these right now. This is something that as you're building up your practice of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts and others, you will always be working towards eliminating these. The Buddha doesn't explain necessarily in the eightfold path itself that you're working to eliminate these, or he's not explaining in the five precepts that you're working to eliminate these, or in some of the other teachings. But just know that everything that he's teaching is guiding you to eliminate these 10 fetters. It does help to have some understanding of some of these fetters as you're making your way to enlightenment, but you really start focusing on the 10 fetters as your mind is experiencing the jhanas. Because in order to experience the jhanas, you would need to put together those core central teachings that I just shared with you. And as you're putting those together more and more, then you'll know through experiencing the jhanas where you see those qualities that the Buddha describes as the jhanas coming into the mind, you'll know that it's time to start focusing on the fetters and eliminating the fetters. But just know that everything you're learning is working towards the elimination of these fetters. And let's just talk about a few of these because in a previous class that I taught, I went through each one individually. But let's just talk about a few of these to help you understand what they are and how to actually eliminate them. So let's look at number two, which is doubt. What doubt is, this pollution or this fetter or this defilement or this taint, is having doubt about the teachings and their ability for them to attain enlightenment. Now, everybody who typically comes to the path to enlightenment is going to have doubt. This is normal. That's why it's part of the fetters. It's part of the pollutions of mind. But as long as that doubt is in there, you're going to have difficulties in progressing further and further along the path. But the way that you eliminate the doubt is not through blind belief or faith or anything like that or just, okay, I'll believe the teachings. Because there's never a time where the Buddha says, just believe me, just believe me, just believe me. You'll never hear him say that and you'll never hear me say that either. So this doubt about the teachings and the ability of them to attain enlightenment, it doesn't get eliminated through belief. The way that you eliminate doubt is through investigating and examining the teachings. And as you do that and you're learning the teachings, you independently verify them through your reflections and you see that they're true. And then you move them into practice and you see the condition of the mind gradually improving where you start seeing the discontentedness gradually diminish. You start seeing the focus, the concentration and clarity and memory start to improve. You start seeing your personal and professional relationships improve and you get to the point where you have no doubt that these teachings are leading to improvement to the condition of the mind and you gain this inner confidence of the Buddha, that he was in fact a Buddha. You gain this confidence in his teachings. You gain confidence in the community that you're part of. You gain confidence in the teacher who has guided you to experience these improvements in the condition of your mind. And you gain this confidence in your own ability to attain enlightenment because you see the progress as the mind is moving forward. You see this progress as the condition of the mind is improving and the condition of your life is improving. So you eliminate doubt through investigating the teachings. And if you are having doubt, that's completely fine. And what I suggest someone does is they harness this 
and they make it more than of an inquisitive doubt because by having this inquisitive doubt now you're harnessing that doubt and directing it towards something positive which is investigating the teachings because if you have doubt like i had doubt when i first came to this path it made me roll up the sleeves dig in and really try to figure out are these teachings true or not and i was able to harness that to create an inquisitive mind to really try to determine whether or not these teachings are true or false and that's what will lead to the elimination of this doubt and ultimately progress on the path to enlightenment but if that doubt remains in there eventually you'll get to the point where you have doubt and you might end up turning away from the teachings and thinking that oh they're no good or they don't help me or they can't do this or they can't do that and that's where one will continue to experience this continuous discontentedness because this pollution of doubt is in there hindering them from being able to move forward on the path to enlightenment so most likely if you're just starting this path you have doubt just harness it to be inquisitive train the mind to be inquisitive to actually progress towards investigating the teachings so that you can independently verify them and practice them and see the transformation of the mind occurring let's talk about this third one which is wrong behavior and observances the way that this one gets eliminated is you learn the moral conduct of the eightfold path to eliminate wrong behavior wrong behavior is things like with our speech in the unenlightened state we might lie we might have slander or gossip we might talk harsh and we might even have frivolous speech where we're having idle chatter and we're just talking about nothing unpurposeful and beneficial speech well as long as our conduct is such that we're causing harm in the world like using harsh speech then this harsh speech is going to come back to us so the way that we transform the mind and no longer practice wrong behavior is we understand through the investigation of the teachings what is the wise wholesome conduct and then we choose on our own to bring our practice up to that more and more so whether it's right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, or what have you, you start working skillfully with these teachings, having learned them and gained the wisdom of them, and then you improve your practice and the way that you conduct yourself in the world, and this is where you'll see the results. And understanding that the teachings of the Buddha, they're not rules, they're not commandments, it's not about forbidden behavior or anything like that. He's cluing you in to the harmful things that we can do in the world and what we're going to encounter by choosing to do those harmful things. And then by us choosing to no longer do those things, we'll experience better results in our life. A Buddha is not trying to convince you to do anything specific. They've already gotten to this peaceful and joyful mental state, and they're just making themselves available to all those people who are interested in learning and practicing to be able to experience that same mental state. And our behavior is part of what's causing us difficulties in the unenlightened state. As long as we are causing harm to others through our conduct, then that harm is going to come back to us. So by us learning the moral conduct in the Eightfold Path, then we can bring our behavior and our conduct and our decisions around our conduct 
up closer and closer to the ideal where we're no longer causing harm in the world so therefore harm isn't coming back to us and this is part of how we're eliminating the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality because we don't realize in the unenlightened state that our gossip and slander is actually causing us harm we don't realize that our harshness and our bitterness our hostility and aggression is actually causing us harm we don't realize certain aspects of our moral conduct is causing us harm because of this unknowing of true reality so when we learn the wisdom of the teachings of the buddha and we choose to implement that then we see the results for ourselves so we're ultimately working to eliminate this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality through acquiring the wisdom of these teachings and one of the things that we need to gain wisdom about is the moral conduct and how to improve that and that's where the eightfold path is helping us to understand that the second part of this fetter of wrong observances this is where people sometimes think that there's rites rituals ceremonies or worship that needs to be done in order to get to enlightenment and what you understand as part of the path to enlightenment in this particular pollution or this fetter this taint that is causing the mind to stay stuck in the unenlightened state is that there is no right ritual ceremony or worship that is going to lead to wisdom if you understand that the ultimate difficulty and problem in the unenlightened mind is this ignorance and unknowing of true reality then the next piece that you can understand is that there is no right ritual ceremony or worship that is going to produce wisdom for you it doesn't matter how much water I sprinkle on you, if I tie a, a string around your wrist, if I do any kind of rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship with you, or you do it on your own, that's not going to lead to an improved condition of mind because you're not gaining any wisdom. So as long as the mind is deluded or misunderstanding or confused and practicing wrong observances and thinking that these observances of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship are leading to an improved condition of mind, then the mind is going to be stuck because of this pollution. It's not going to be actively working towards acquiring wisdom. The mind instead thinks that you can just get some water sprinkled on you or a string tied around your wrist or do some other right ritual ceremony and worship and that's going to lead to a better way of life, but it doesn't. We can do those things at any time and then we can see for ourselves that it doesn't lead to improvement to the condition of our mind. It might make you feel good, happy feelings for a few moments or a few hours, but those are going to fade because the wisdom of how to get to enlightenment hasn't been brought into the mind. So as long as the mind has wrong behavior, we're going to be causing harm through our moral conduct. That's going to be coming back to us. As long as we have wrong observances where we're doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, we're falsely thinking that this is going to lead to improvement in our life and we're not actually cultivating the wisdom of how to train our mind and get to this enlightened mental state. So these are two that I can share with you here because these are two that we typically have when we first get started on the path to enlightenment. And then these others are ones that I talked about at other times in classes. But let's talk about number eight in the higher fetters because here you can see the higher fetters number eight is one that even though you might not be ready to look at the fetters right now it's something that you can be working on right now because it's quite a challenge oftentimes for the mind to eliminate this one the conceit in personal existence view personal existence view is number one conceit is number eight this is what we would call today as the ego 
during the lifetime of the Buddha, the word ego didn't exist. So he's describing this personal existence view and conceit, which today we combine that and we call it the ego. But it actually helps to look at it as two separate pieces because when you see the two separate pieces and you understand the antidote and the prescription to resolving this and remedying this and transforming the mind, then you can see that there's two different aspects of the mind that you're actually remedying and antidoting. So oftentimes this conceit is in the mind as we're starting to learn and practice. And oftentimes it can rear up at different times. You can be two or three years into your training and this conceit can rear up in the mind because it's a higher fetter and it tends to be around for a while. What conceit is, is it's this arrogance and pride, this judging of others, this measuring and comparing that you're superior or inferior to others. And this just causes us problems in the human world because when we're arrogant and prideful and judging others and putting ourselves above and below others, we might talk down to people or we might talk up to people and we feel like uncalm and shaken up when we feel somebody's above us. And this causes the mind to be shaken up and you can't experience peacefulness and harmonious relationships as long as this arrogance pride, judging, measuring, and comparing as being superior or inferior is in the mind. Where this is coming from is this is coming from our animal existences. And as we were in the animal realm and these countless births that we've had in the animal realm, our mind was conditioned to experience this conceit because we needed it when we were in the animal realm. We needed to know the alpha male and alpha female in our pack of wolves. We needed to know that who was the matriarch of our elephant herd because she's the one who knows where all the water is. She's the one who knows where the food is and she's going to guide us to understanding how to sustain our life and how to live this life. So we needed to know who's above us and who's below us because this helped to sustain our life and allowed us to survive in the animal realm. But because our mind was conditioned with this conceit for so many experiences in our previous lives, when we get into this human realm, we maintain this conceit, this arrogance, this pride, putting ourselves above people and below people. But it just causes us problems over and over and over again. So where you see any kind of arrogance or pride or judging or measuring and comparing coming into the mind where you, the mind wants to put itself above or below people, you cut that off and let it go. This is why you're training and breathing mindfulness meditation to cut off thoughts and come back to the breath. You're not allowing the thoughts of the arrogance and pride to come into the mind. You're not interested in allowing the mind to judge other people. You're trying to rewire this mind so that where you see that occurring, you can cut it off and let it go. So the mind is going to do this for a period of time because that's what you've been doing throughout all these countless lives. And you can't just fix it in one day or one week or one month. It's going to take a lot of training. So that's why I introduce it to you here so that whenever you see it arising in your mind, you can cut it off and let it go. And then in chapter 16, we're going to go into a lot more detail, helping you to understand very specific things that you can be doing in addition to what I just shared to eliminate the conceit. But for now, wherever you see this arising, you cut that off and let it go. Don't allow the mind to be arrogant or prideful or judge other people or measure and compare. You're not a bad person if your mind is doing this. 
It's just that it's untrained. So your goal is to stay aware of the mind with mindfulness so that where you see this unwholesome quality arising in the mind, you can cut it off and let it go. More and more, it won't do that. So there'll be less and less times that the mind will arise this conceit because every time it arises, you cut it off and it arises and you cut it off and it arises and you cut it off. This is like a wild bush that's growing. You just keep cutting it back and cutting it back and cutting it back. Eventually you uproot this wild bush and it will never grow. It will never exist anymore. So right now where you see conceit, you'd like to cut it back and cut it back and cut it back. And in chapter 16, I'm going to teach you how to uproot it out of the mind so that it will no longer exist in the mind. And that's what you would need to do with each individual one of these fetters is uproot them out of the mind and eliminate them so that they'll no longer exist in the mind. Let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about how to get to enlightenment and those core teachings as well as the 10 fetters. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on Facebook or YouTube, and I don't see any in Zoom either. Oh, there we go. There's Marcy. Go ahead. I know. I'm not, I don't seem to be very quick with my hands this morning. Um, Teacher David, why is it broken down? And, and if this is not a beneficial you know, thing for anyone to know, it's just something I'm inquiring about. Why is it broken down between lower fetters and higher fetters? Okay. So as we progress through the stages of enlightenment, which I'm going to share with you guys next, these fetters are organized in a certain way that your mind is progressing through these stages of enlightenment. And when you first get started, you really need to be focusing on these lower fetters because that's what's kind of opening up the mind and softening the mind and helping you get to the higher and higher stages of enlightenment. So if you still had doubt about the teachings, for example, you wouldn't be able to eliminate conceit because conceit is a very challenging thing for most people to eliminate. So you need to eliminate some of these others before you get to those higher fetters. So if you hadn't eliminated the lower fetters, it would be more challenging for you to eliminate the higher fetters. But some people, you know, you can work on that conceit while you're working on eliminating doubt and central desire and these other things. So it's more like a natural progression of how the Buddha has laid out the path and it gives you personal guidance to be able to navigate your way on this path. So it's kind of a more natural way to eliminate these fetters and it helps you to have this personal guidance to have a focus on the lower fetters and then more directly focus on the higher fetters. The higher fetters tend to be more challenging to eliminate. And the fetter of ignorance, that number 10, that's the last one that goes for everybody. All these other fetters can be eliminated from the mind, but it's the ignorance, which is the very last fetter. Because the way that you eliminate the ignorance is that you learn, reflect, and you practice. And as you're transforming the mind, and you actually get to the point where you have eliminated all the fetters, then the ignorance is completely gone. But as long as there's even any little inkling of any of these 
individual fetters, that means there's still ignorance in the mind too, because you haven't yet figured out how to eliminate conceit, or you haven't yet figured out how to eliminate sensual desire or ill will, because there's still that ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So they're organized in a way that's best for personal growth, and it tends to be the way that you focus on them and you eliminate them. But you can work on the higher fetters while you still have some of the lower fetters. You don't have to eliminate them in this sequence, but you tend to focus on them for personal development in this sequence. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. I'm going to look at YouTube one more time and Facebook as well. Okay. I don't see any questions in Facebook or YouTube, so we'll go ahead and move on to the next thing that I was going to share with you guys, which is the four stages of enlightenment and understanding these. I talked about these in a previous class in more detail, but here, let me just help you kind of in general to understand these. There's stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and otter hunt. These are the four stages of enlightenment. The Buddha called stream enter this name because when you put a log into the stream, it eventually gets to the ocean. It's just a matter of time before it ends up in the ocean. And an individual who attains that first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter, they're going to get to enlightenment. It's just a matter of time. So whether it's in this life or a future life, they will get to enlightenment. Their mind won't regress out of that stage of enlightenment while they're in this life. Any work that you've done up until you get to this stage of enlightenment as a stream enter, the mind can regress. So while you're still learning, while you're still in the jhanas, your mind can still easily regress if you weren't dedicated and diligent in your practice. But once the mind gets to this stage of enlightenment, which is the first stage called stream enter, your mind won't regress from there. In this stage of enlightenment, discontentedness has significantly diminished. At this point, you've already eliminated personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behavior and observances, the first three fetters. And because of that, and some other things that you would need to do in order to get to stream entry, your mind has significantly reduced discontentedness and it won't regress from there, it will only progress forward. The once returner, this individual has already eliminated the first three fetters and then they've thinned four and five, sensual desire and ill will has been thinned. So if you find yourself not as interested in certain sensual desires, like where in the past you might have gone out on shopping sprees and you just felt it was so great to shop and buy all of these things, where now it's just like, man, eh, take it or leave it. I need some clothes. Let me go get some clothes and you know, I'll just buy me myself some clothes because that's what I need. Or you, you know, eat uh, certain foods and you enjoy those foods, but when you're not eating those foods, your mind is okay to eat something else as well. You're not just craving to only eat the foods that you enjoy. Or if you notice that your interest in sex diminishes a bit, where when we were younger, maybe you know we had this raging desire to have sexual contact. But as we age, our sensual desire starts to diminish and we don't have as much interest in it as we once did when we were potentially younger. That's what it means to have a thinned sensual desire. And the same thing with a thinned ill will, that if at one point you used to have rage and anger and you would you know, get so fierce with your anger and ill will, where now 
you notice that eh, you're kind of frustrated, you're kind of annoyed, you know, you're kind of irritated, but it doesn't get to that rage as you used to have in the past. This ill will is maybe starting to thin. That's what it means to thin ill will, where you don't have these thoughts of harming others and doing harmful things to others, where in the past you might have done that. So this ill will can be thinned. That's what it is to get to this stage of once returner, where you've eliminated personal existence view, doubt, wrong behavior, and observances, but you've thinned central desire and ill will. And then this person, if they die in that stage of enlightenment, they will come back to the human realm one more time and they will get to enlightenment. In the stream enter, in that stage, you will come back a maximum of seven times. Doesn't mean you will come back seven times. You could come back two, three, or four times and get to enlightenment at some point, but a maximum of seven. In the stage of once returner, you're only going to come back to the human realm one more time and you will get to enlightenment in that next life. In the stage of non-returner, this third stage, this person has eliminated all the lower fetters and they're only experiencing discontentedness maybe like once every three months, once every six months. Very rarely are they experiencing any discontentedness. It's very rare. Um, and when they experience it, not only is it infrequent, but it's not very intense. It's very minimal. So oftentimes an individual that's in the stage of non-returner, this third stage, can become complacent because they're not really experiencing much discontentedness. If you die in this stage of enlightenment, having eliminated all the five lower fetters, you will be reborn into the heavenly realm and you will attain enlightenment there. You won't return back to the human realm. That's what we call it non-returner. And you will see that your mind is, is very infrequently experiencing discontentedness. You'll know what it is. You'll know that your own mind has caused it and you'll be able to extinguish it fairly quickly. So in this stage of enlightenment, there's very minimal discontentedness, but there's potentially still this arrogance and pride. There could potentially be this restlessness. There will be this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality because they haven't yet addressed the higher fetters. It's not until one is an otter hunt, this is where the mind is actually enlightened, where all 10 fetters are eliminated. They've already eliminated the five lower fetters, and now they've also eliminated the higher fetters. Those are completely eliminated from the mind. The mind is completely purified. This individual is now enlightened. They're an otter hunt. These stages of enlightenment are for your own personal development. It's not something that you're gonna call up mom and be like, hey mom, guess what? I'm a stream enterer. Aren't you so proud of me? Right? This isn't something that you're going to do because you're trying to eliminate conceits and pride and arrogance. You're not interested in, you know, putting a Facebook post out into the world of like, hey, I'm a once returner. Look at me. Aren't I so great? Right? So you're not going to be interested in doing that kind of thing. And as an otter hunt, this is where your mind's completely eliminated that conceit so you won't be even interested in telling people that you're enlightened one of the ways to know that the mind isn't enlightened is that somebody will profess that they are enlightened this person is still looking for admiration and their mind is not enlightened they still have ego so an otter hunt in all of these stages of enlightenment and these fetters it's all for your personal development and by the time the mind gets to this stage of the fourth stage of enlightenment as an otter hunt, there's no discontentedness whatsoever. It's been one year, two years, three years. You're not seeing any anger. You're not seeing any frustration. Even the slightest annoyance 
is completely gone from the mind. There isn't even a little bit of ickiness in the mind. The mind is just completely peaceful and joyful all the time for an extended period of time because you've eliminated all these pollutions that we call the 10 fetters. This is an individual who's an otter hunt. And these are the four stages of enlightenment. Then there's an individual that's called a Buddha. This is very rare. It's not a stage of enlightenment, but this individual has eliminated all the 10 fetters of these pollutions in the mind. They've eliminated all of them from their mind, but they've done it in a unique way. The last Buddha that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. So let me help you understand what a Buddha is, and you'll understand that it's not a stage of enlightenment. It's an actual individual. What a Buddha is, is an individual who has attained enlightenment on their own without the help or guidance of any teachers. So they've independently discovered the teachings of what leads to enlightenment. They've independently figured out how to eliminate all those 10 fetters and even what those 10 fetters are and what the Eightfold Path is and the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts and all these different teachings that the Buddha shares. He discovered all these teachings on his own without the help of any teachers or any guides. And he's eliminated those 10 fetters. So he is an arahant, he is enlightened, but he's done it without the help of any teachers or any guides. That's the first criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha, is they have no teachers at all. The second one is that they then declare those teachings that they independently discovered during the rest of their lifetime. They share those with others and they lead countless people to enlightenment during their lifetime. So over the course of their lifetime, they're going to share their teachings with anybody and everybody who's interested in learning and they will guide countless people to enlightenment during their lifetime, declaring and sharing those teachings that they independently discovered. Then they will leave their teachings in such a condition that they're preserved so that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. And this is what a Buddha is. They're considered to be fully, perfectly enlightened. The Buddha meets all three of these criteria. He didn't have any teachers or guides and he attained enlightenment through his own independent efforts. He dedicated the rest of his life to sharing those independently discovered teachings and countless people got to enlightenment during his lifetime. Then he preserved the teachings in such a condition that countless more people got to enlightenment after his death. And this is how we know that he was a Buddha because his students that are learning with him, they could see the condition of their mind improving and that they knew what it felt like to be angry and fearful and feeling guilt or shame. And then as their mind no longer experienced those discontent feelings in others, they could see that their mind was no longer discontent and they knew that he didn't have any teachers. So they could see that he met all three of these criteria. We refer to a Buddha as fully perfectly enlightened because the way that a Buddha functions through their independent journey to enlightenment is as they're doing different practices, if a certain practice like a certain meditation works to improve the condition of their mind, then they know that this is the path to enlightenment. But if something doesn't work, they will discard it. They will no longer practice that thing. And by the time an individual who is a Buddha gets to enlightenment, 
they are fully perfectly enlightened. What they know about the path to enlightenment is exactly the path to enlightenment. And then they're going to spend the rest of their life illuminating this path, like putting lights down along the side of the path so that more and more people can understand what this path to enlightenment is. That's what they're working to do is they no longer have any selfish pursuits or selfish desires. They're only sharing their teachings out of compassion for others. And they're illuminating this path to help more and more people to understand this path to enlightenment. So we call them fully perfectly enlightened because their mind understands perfectly what it takes to get to enlightenment. Another person who's learning, they might have a teacher who is enlightened but that teacher isn't perfectly enlightened. So therefore, what this individual is learning, maybe only 80% or 90% of it really truly led to their enlightenment. But this other 10 or 20% that they're still practicing, it didn't lead to their enlightenment, but they're still practicing it because that's what their teacher maybe taught them. So they have a little bit of baggage. They have a little bit of dust that has collected that it's not the pure wisdom that a Buddha is going to have. So an enlightened being is an enlightened being. They're an arahant. Wonderful. They got to enlightenment. That's nothing to be disgruntled about. That's wonderful if anybody gets to enlightenment. But a Buddha, a fully perfectly enlightened one, they're only going to know the pure path to enlightenment. And this is where their wisdom is very penetrating and very precise and very concise in the way that they share their teachings. There's one other quality of the mind of a Buddha that doesn't exist in the average enlightened being. The average enlightened being, while they are able to get to enlightenment, and this is absolutely wonderful for them, their mind doesn't function 100% the way that a Buddha's mind functions. And I'll help you understand this. Your mind is like a hard drive. It only has a certain capacity, like one gigabyte or one terabyte or something like this. And then in the last five, 10, maybe 20 years, you have a certain recall about all the different events and all the different things that you've experienced in this kind of short period of time. When it comes to the memories of your childhood, for example, you just have spotty memories. And this is because you have a limited capacity to your hard drive. You need to delete old files in order to store new files. And you are remembering the last five years or 10 years or so fairly closely. But this memories from the past, they're kind of spotty because you've had to delete old files in order to store new files. This is because the average person's mind only has a limited capacity. But a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, an individual who is to become a Buddha, their mind doesn't function that way. They don't have a limited capacity to their mind. Their mind has this unlimited capacity. They don't have to delete old files to store new files. They just continue to remember and accumulate wisdom from this life. They can remember intricate details about their life and their previous lives as well. So in their previous lives, in this life, they've been accumulating wisdom in this unlimited capacity of their mind that leads to their ability to now get to enlightenment on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. This is the quality of their mind that allows them to accomplish this. And this is why only a Buddha would be able to get to enlightenment by themselves where everyone else is going to need teachers and guides. An actual Buddha has accumulated wisdom over countless lifetimes in their last lifetime, which culminates into their ability to attain enlightenment on their own in their last life. 
And this is a quality of mind that's unique to an individual who's to become a Buddha. A Buddha can quickly determine the condition of mind of another person because they're able to observe that person's mind, not in a judgmental way, but they can just see certain cravings or certain perceptions that they're clinging to or certain ill will or the doubt or any of these other fetters that we talked about. A Buddha has already done that inner work to eliminate those fetters from their own mind so that when they see these fetters manifesting in other people's mind, they're able to observe that about their mind and the way that they conduct themselves. And what that does is that helps the Buddha to then be able to share teachings with that individual that will help them eliminate those pollutions. A Buddha would only share teachings with somebody who asked for help, but once a student asks them for help, they're able to easily observe the condition of their student's mind and then share teachings with them that will help them. The Buddha calls this pointing out treasure that a teacher will point out treasure for you to be able to address that and overcome those obstacles. So a Buddha would only use this quality as a way of helping people, not as a judgmental way or looking down on people. A Buddha doesn't consider themselves above other people or below other people. They just consider themselves to be an average normal person, just like everybody else. It's just that they were very dedicated to the path to enlightenment and they have this special quality of their mind that allowed them to get to enlightenment. So today, somebody might think of a Buddha as being really high and above them, but a Buddha doesn't think about themselves that way. Even though others might think of them that way, the Buddha themselves doesn't think about themselves as being above others. They think of themselves as just like everybody else and everybody's equal. A Buddha has a deep practice of their own teachings. They're a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. A Buddha doesn't teach right speech and then practice wrong speech, or they don't teach being loving and kind and then practice being hateful and aggressive and having ill will towards people. That's not what a Buddha does. A Buddha has already uprooted all their pollutions of mind. They no longer have the 10 fetters. So they're a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. And this is one of the ways that they help their students to get to enlightenment. They will need to have discourses and share their teachings through spoken language. And this is what we might call a discourse or a class or a retreat or something like this. They would need to be able to speak about the teachings and share their wisdom of what led to their enlightenment through spoken word. But the other way that they share their teachings is through their own practice, essentially being a role model for their students, that as they're sharing their teachings through discourses and helping their students understand what right intention and right speech and right action and all these other things are, like the five precepts, not only are they sharing it verbally, but then they're practicing it so that their students can see for themselves what it takes to be able to practice these teachings. So they're a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings being kind of like a role model for their students to be able to then observe how they conduct themselves in daily life. And then they're able to actually practice those teachings themselves through their own practice of those teachings. So a Buddha is a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. We might say nowadays that a Buddha practices what they preach, right? We kind of say this, a Buddha doesn't preach, but you'll understand the, the analogy or the saying that a Buddha practices what they preach. 
They're going to teach one thing and they're going to do that thing as well. They're not going to teach one thing and do something else. They're going to see themselves as equal. They're not going to ask people to worship them or praise them or admire them. They're not going to go around and perform a bunch of miracles and try to convince people who they are. Instead, they're just going to humbly go about their work of sharing their teachings and helping people get to enlightenment because that's what's going to help the teachings to continue to be sustained in the world is by more and more people getting to enlightenment because as a person gets to enlightenment, they will have acquired the wisdom that was needed in order to get to enlightenment. So a Buddha is just going to humbly and peacefully go about their work and sharing the teachings that lead to enlightenment. And they're going to be that role model to be an example for their students to be able to understand how to get to enlightenment. Let me see what questions you guys have on things that I just shared. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any hands. So since I don't see any hands, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move forward with some other things to share with you guys. This next thing is about how to determine that one is not enlightened. This is really helpful. Now that I've shared with you what enlightenment is, you would like to know, well, how do I know if I'm not enlightened? Because if you see things that the mind isn't enlightened, you're going to need to eradicate those in order to get to enlightenment. So the first thing is if the mind is experiencing discontentedness, then you know that your mind is unenlightened. You can actually go periods of time as you're getting close to enlightenment where you've gone three months or six months with no discontentedness and then boom, you're going to have a little bit of discontentedness. So that's why you need to get rid of that arrogance and conceit being boastful and thinking that maybe you're enlightened because if you go three months or six months thinking that you're enlightened and then boom you get a little bit of discontentedness then you know that's going to shatter your ego right there so be sure that you always remain humble and not allowing the mind to be boastful and thinking that you're actually enlightened so if there's conditioned feelings in the mind then you know that you're unenlightened and here when we talk about pleasant feelings remember we're talking about conditioned feelings these conditioned feelings are happiness excitement elation thrill euphoria these are based on some condition if it's sunny outside i'll be happy if i get my chocolate cake today i'll be happy that's a conditioned feeling an enlightened mind is beyond pleasure and pain it's no longer experiencing this condition happiness which is ultimately unsatisfying and we're not experiencing in the enlightened mental state these painful feelings or these neither painful nor pleasant feelings if somebody shares that they are enlightened this is one of the best ways to know that they're not enlightened because an enlightened being isn't going to be walking around being boastful and arrogant and seeking admiration from others that they are enlightened instead if someone's mind is peaceful and joyful go be peaceful and joyful. Why do you need to come around here and try to convince us that you're enlightened? Go be peaceful and joyful. So if somebody is boastful and saying that they're enlightened, or if your mind is still interested in doing that, then you know that your mind is not enlightened. Or if you notice complacency, this lack of motivation or initiative or enthusiasm, this willingness to do something, then the mind is not enlightened. Because the mind's 
in the unenlightened state typically going to have craving desire attachment where it's chasing after the objects of its affection and because of that continuous chasing there's going to be periods of time where the mind's lethargic or unmotivated or unenthused because it's been chasing it gets tired in that chase with the craving desire attachment in the mind so then it's going to swing from that over to this lack of motivation or initiative or enthusiasm. But what you're doing on the path to enlightenment is you're honing the mind and you're bringing it into the middle where it's performing optimally. And the Buddha describes this as the middle way. And he uses the analogy of an instrument to help you understand what you're doing on this path to enlightenment. That if you had an instrument that the string was too tight and you plucked it, it wouldn't play beautiful music the way it was intended to play. But if the string was too loose and you pluck that, it's not going to play beautiful music either. It's only when you tune the string perfectly in the middle that you pluck it and the instrument plays the way it was intended to play. It plays beautiful music. And the mind is the same way, that if it's too uptight, if it's chasing things with craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and yearning, then it's not going to perform optimally. But if it's too loose, if it's lethargic, if it's unmotivated, if it lacks initiative, then it's not going to play beautiful music there either. It's not performing the way it was intended to play. So you're bringing the mind into the middle and you're fine-tuning it. And because you're not chasing after cravings, you're not going to also experience that lack of motivation, that lethargic condition. The mind's going to be calm and relaxed, but it's going to be attentive and alert. So if you're experiencing this complacency or lack of motivation, this dullness, this lethargic condition, then you know that the mind is not enlightened. So an enlightened being is going to do work. They're going to have this energy, this willingness to do something. And they're also going to be able to relax and they're going to be able to experience that relaxation in the mind. But in the unenlightened state, because we're chasing, 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 and then we're swinging to the other side where now we're you know dull and lethargic and completely wiped out where as you're fine-tuning the mind and bringing it into the middle you won't experience those ups and downs and ups and downs so this is everything that i was going to share with you guys today related to enlightenment and what is enlightenment i'll see if there's any remaining questions related to enlightenment Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. It looks like uh, Joe has his hand up, so we'll go ahead over to Joe. Hi, mine was, my question was about restlessness. Um, I was wondering, I guess when I feel restless, when I don't have to work or I don't have anything to do, um, I, you know, I'm obviously craving something to do. Um, and I was wondering, I guess meditation would help with that. Maybe at that point I would meditate or maybe you have some advice um, to help me with that. That's one thing that I do struggle with. Sure. So when the mind is restless, it's typically overactive and it may even be some worry or anxiety in there sometimes. This is like an excited state and you like to bring the mind down into the middle. And we use the seven factors of enlightenment to help with that. Oftentimes people think the seven factors of enlightenment are to determine if somebody is enlightened, but actually it's to fine tune the mind and bring the mind out of that excited state down into more of a calm middle relaxed state, or if the mind is sluggish and lethargic to bring it up into that calm state. So what you would practice when you experience the restlessness is you should already have your breathing mindfulness meditation 
regularly, ongoing, two to three times a day. But where you notice, even with your meditation, that your mind is not yet experiencing the calmness and the relaxed state where it's up in this excited or euphoric condition or this restlessness, you then arise the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And these are in chapter three as well. You can see the description of them there that you would need to arise these in the mind. So you're using mindfulness or awareness of mind to observe that the mind is restless. And then when you observe that, you have that awareness of mind, then you're applying right effort to cut off and let go of that restlessness by arising the tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Thank you. I'll check that out. Yeah, you're welcome. Looks like Joanne has a question. Hi. Um, I have a little bit of um, confusion with the four stages. So it goes, so a once returner means you come back to the human form one time. Is that correct? Yes, that's and correct. Then the, then the arahant is in the heavenly realm where you do your work. But does that mean you don't come back to human form again? You're thinking of non-returner. A non-returner has already done a certain amount of work here. And then when they die, if they die in that stage of enlightenment, then they go to the heavenly realm and they will get to enlightenment there. An otter hunt, they've already done all the work. They're experiencing enlightenment and they don't experience rebirth anywhere at all. Okay. All right. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. Let me check Facebook and YouTube and see if we have any questions here. Just looks like Jacqueline is thanking everybody for the class. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook or YouTube. Don't see any more in Zoom either. So what I'll do then is I will just end class by thanking all of you for joining and encourage you, if you haven't already, to read this chapter. You might even decide to read it more than once because it's fairly detailed in explaining all the different facets of enlightenment. What I'll also share with you is that oftentimes, I shouldn't say often, but there's occasional situations where sometimes when somebody learns about what enlightenment is, is they sometimes think that an enlightened being, their mind is just like a robot or that they don't experience any kind of a pleasure at all. But this isn't actually true. An enlightened mind, they're experiencing a whole lot of fun, a whole lot of enjoyment way more enjoyment than they ever experienced in the unenlightened state. Because in the unenlightened state, you're experiencing just that conditional happiness. You can only be happy when things go your way. But in the enlightened state, you can be happy all the time. You have unconditional happiness. In the unenlightened state, not only do you experience only experience this happiness when things go your way, but you're sometimes experiencing this irritation, annoyance, this frustration, this anger, this sadness, this guilt and shame and fear and these other disconsent feelings. So in the unenlightened state, the mind's going up and down and up and down and up and down at different times with, yeah, some peacefulness here and there, but it's only a matter of time before it goes up and down at some other point. But in the enlightened mental state, you're enjoying life. You're having all kinds of fun. Your relationships, both personally and professionally, are going wonderful. 
you've really created the life that you've always dreamed of, the life that you've always been interested in perhaps experiencing where you have people that are around you that you love and they love you. You have great relationships with your life partner if you have a life partner or you've decided to be single and you're completely content with that and joyful with that. Or you might have decided to have kids at some time or not having kids and you're completely content with that. You're pleased with those decisions. You're going to enjoy whatever work that you're doing, whatever your livelihood is, you're just going to feel very fulfilled about the livelihood that you've chosen and what you're choosing to do. You're not going to have this harshness and this roughness in your personal or professional relationships. You've sorted all that out and you've now gotten to the point where your mind is experiencing this peace and joy for the rest of this life. So you've done all the work both internally in your mind and you've cultivated relationships that are very fulfilling and very rewarding, you're never experiencing where you're angry or hostile or bitter towards somebody. The enlightened mind, you can't even try to be angry. If your mind is enlightened, if you tried to be angry, you can't even force the mind to be angry. It just won't do it. It just won't experience anger. It just won't experience arguing. You won't argue with somebody else. You won't be hostile or bitter. You just can't even force the mind to do that. It will no longer do that because it's essentially been rewired or purified where it's literally impossible for the enlightened mind to ever be angry, frustrated, irritated, have a bitter or harsh word towards somebody, argue or anything like this. And this is a gradual progression that you see the glimpses of this being able to happen in your life. You might actually have certain relationships now where you've never been bitter or harsh with this person. You've never had an ill feeling towards that one person ever. But then there's other people in your life that you have more difficulties with and more challenges with. This is because of the craving and attachment that you have in those relationships. So what you're doing in this enlightened mind and as you're progressing on the path to enlightenment is you're encompassing your whole life where all the relationships, everything that you're involved in, the mind's never experiencing any discontentedness. So it's not just this isolated relationship or it's not just one day or one week that you're experiencing peacefulness, but everything in your life is all sorted and you've trained your mind through the wisdom of the teachings of the Buddha to be able to do that inner work and heal from what hurt you so that you never need to hurt again. It's like the last struggle of all struggles. There's going to be certain struggles along the path to enlightenment, certain challenges, but you'll have the support and the ability to get help to overcome those challenges. And once you overcome them, then you have the wisdom of what it takes to overcome those. And now you won't experience those same obstacles anymore because you have the wisdom of how to overcome them. So your mind is at ease. You're never in a bad mood and you can't even force the mind to be angry or frustrated at that point. The mind just doesn't even do that. I see that Marcy has her hand up. So before I end class, we'll just see what question you have, Marcy. Thank you, Teacher David. Uh, I apologize for being late again on that hand raising. Um, so as this being Marcy is is working on cravings and stuff, I've noticed that I'm having a cravings in a lot of different areas. But in class today, I'm noticing that as you speak, I'm just constantly nodding, constantly nodding. Like is it an agreement? You know, I'm 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 agreeing. But I'm I don't know. Is that a craving coming out in a physical act? or is that the arising of the information coming in or is that just something a personal thing that i will be the only one to answer 
So I just, I feel like I'm a bobblehead because I'm like constantly just like nodding. I've just noted, and again, you know, as this being becomes more aware of cravings, I didn't, I wanted to kind of see if this is a craving or is this, you know, normal. If you're just nodding your head and just agreeing with somebody, that's not necessarily a craving, right? The craving is happening inside the mind. It's the mental longing and strong eagerness where the mind is going to become discontent. It's going to have some conditioned feeling as a result of the craving. So it's not the act itself or it's not the object itself that you can say like, okay, that person has a mobile phone, so they have a craving. That's not how you would discern that you have a craving or not. It's about how the mind relates to this. So if you're just listening, you're like, yep, I agree with that. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Yep. You know, that's not a craving. But if you take it to the point where it's like, oh, this enlightenment thing sounds so wonderful. I've got to have it. I want it. I'm going to get it like now. That's the craving, the longing, the yearning, the chasing after it, thinking that this is the next best thing. The next shiny object is going to provide you lasting satisfaction. So someone can actually crave enlightenment itself. So if somebody has this craving for peacefulness or this craving for joy, you won't actually experience it. You need to let go of the craving for enlightenment itself and pursue it as a goal, as an objective or interest. It's almost like you're sneaking up on it without it even realizing that that's what you're doing. So you're gradually working towards this enlightened mental state without this craving. So just nodding your head in agreement to something that somebody says isn't necessarily indicative of a craving. But if there's the longing and yearning, that's the craving, and then it's going to lead to some type of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you all for your questions in today's class. Next week on Sunday, we're going to be in Chapter 4, which is titled The Four Noble Truths, Establishing Right View. This is something that we talked about about seven or eight weeks ago, but now we're going to spend an entire class session just on the Four Noble Truths because before we split time between the Four Noble Truths and other things in that class. So because we're now walking through the heart of the book, we're going to spend just one class session talking about the three universal truths and the Four Noble Truths because this is where you can have your breakthrough. This is where you can establish right view and deeply understand what is the problem, what is the cause, the elimination, and the way forward. So we're gonna do that on next Sunday. This Wednesday, we're gonna be in the fourth part of our four-part series of loving-kindness meditation where I'm gonna be meditating with you guys and helping to guide you in loving-kindness meditation. And then thereafter, we're gonna move into the Buddhist chanting four-part series where I'm going to teach you guys how to do Buddhist chanting. So thank you all for joining for today's class. Thank you for your dedication and diligence to learning these teachings. We'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.